You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you uh, that you give us this opportunity now to come to your word, and we realize that we will not understand or divide it rightly apart from you giving us wisdom uh, and your spirit illuminating us in uh, the areas where we're lacking. So we ask for that as we open your word now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians 6. Uh, We're in verses 1 through 210. And as you're turning there, let me read the whole passage for us, and we'll walk through it. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we're treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. So for the last month or so, we have walked through specifically 2 Corinthians 5, the chapter as a whole. And sort of the the primary object of concern in 2 Corinthians 5 is this question of reconciliation. And if you'll permit me to kill a dead horse by repeating this one more time, uh, when the Bible talks about reconciliation, it is two parties that are at odds with one another being brought back into fellowship and unity and friendship and amicability and all of those other positive words that happen when two people who hate each other don't hate each other anymore. When the Bible talks about reconciliation specifically here, it's talking about the fact that there exists a a disconnect, and it is not no small disconnect. It is a great disconnect that exists between man and God. Man has rebelled against his maker, and God and his justice must punish sin. And so there is a conflict that exists. And that reconciliation is the restoring of the relationship between mankind and God that was lost and damaged and destroyed by our sinfulness. And how God did this is what we spent last week talking about. Theologians call it the great exchange, uh, which is essentially this, that on the cross, Christ took all of our sin, and through his death and his resurrection and ascension, he has given us his righteousness so that we are reconciled if we are found in him. And really, the first two verses of our text for the rest of the evening is Paul sort of just summarizing everything he said about reconciliation and issuing like this one last plea to be reconciled. And in the first verse, there's some things that if you were to read them, or maybe even as I just read them, you went, oh, that sounds weird. Uh, the first of them is this. Paul makes the statement in chapter 6, verse 1, working together with him, the him being God. Now, you, you likely have heard this if you've been in church for a while and you go, that doesn't sound quite right because God's the one doing the working. We're, he doesn't need our help. He's God. He can do whatever he 
wants. And so you hear this working together with God and you go, that sounds strange. But what Paul says here is actually perfectly in line with what he said in chapter five that we spent last month in. He makes this statement in chapter five, verse 20. God is making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So there's a reality within this ministry that that I'm actually pretty grateful for. Um, I realize that everybody in here is sort of on a different point in the spectrum of thinking through things like God's sovereignty or Calvinism or predestination or things like that. And, and I realize that what you think about that uh, certainly affects the way that you think about how it is that God saves people. And I'm happy to have those discussions and let you know where I land, but not from behind the pulpit, so ask me later. But regardless of what you think about predestination and Calvinism and how that intersects with salvation, there's some things that all of us can agree on as far as how we work with God and how God in turn works with us. I think we can all agree on the fact that God uses people to accomplish his purposes. No matter where you land, we all agree on that. The second thing we can all agree on is that God's sovereignty never absolves us of human responsibility. This is why when Jesus actually calls Paul to the ministry, and sort of knocks him off his horse literally and and calls him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, he goes to Ananias and he says, he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. So if you were to ask the question, why did the gospel go to the Gentiles, which I would assume is almost everyone in this room because it's anybody who's not Jewish. If you were to ask, why did the gospel go to the Gentiles, the answer is because Jesus wanted it to. But if you were asked the question, How did the gospel go to the Gentiles? The answer would be because Jesus picked Paul and sent Paul. Uh, Much in the same way, if you were to ask the question, how did the gospel come to the Corinthians? The answer is because Jesus wanted it to. Or if you were to ask why, but if you were to ask how that happened, the answer would be God made his appeal through Paul, through the apostles. So Luther has this Uh, this exposition of the Lord's Prayer that is actually really helpful in thinking about how these things intersect or relate to each other. Uh, Luther is walking through the Lord's Prayer in one of his later writings, and he's going through all the petitions, all the things that are being asked of God, and one of them, it's super prominent. Uh, Even if you're not a Christian in this room, you've probably heard the phrase before, give us this day our daily bread. And so Luther asks this question. He goes, what does it look like for God to answer that request? What does it look like for God to give people their daily bread? Well, he comes down to two different things. It, it sort of works itself out in two different ways. One, he might answer that in a miraculous, earth-shattering way. There's just bread. So, so example would be Israel in the wilderness, uh, where God just causes bread from heaven, manna is what it's called in the book of Exodus, to uh, rain down from heaven and supply them. So that's one way of answering it, but what Luther says is more often than not, the way that God answers that request for daily bread is through sustaining ordinary things. So this is how Luther works it out. When we ask for daily bread, God answers that by sending rain on the field, making the harvest significant, strengthening the hands of the workers who harvest it, giving wisdom to the engineers who develop the ways in which we refine wheat into flour, Uh, He gives daily bread by giving you a job so that you have the money to purchase the flour and an oven that you can bake the bread in. So sometimes it's 
immediate, miraculous, astounding, and sometimes God just works through the ordinary means. He works through people. And so what I think this means, when Paul says that we work together with him, what that sort of rules out entirely, no matter where you land on the question of sovereignty and things like that, it rules out entirely this idea that you can sit in your cubicle or you can sit uh, next to your lab partner and say, God's going to save whoever he wants, so I don't have an obligation to talk about the gospel with people. That is completely ruled out because the way in which God has chosen for the gospel to go forward is through his people. So, he says, working together with him. Then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, I've got brothers and sisters and dear friends in all sorts of denominations, and when we get to this question of can you lose your salvation, can't you lose your salvation, this is something that comes up. They go, well, you can receive the grace of God in vain. That must mean that you can be saved and then you can be unsaved. And so that's what it looks like to receive it in vain. And I think that in the context of everything Paul said, I don't, I don't know that I agree with that necessarily. Because as you look at the passage, Paul is continually talking about the fact that God has seen fit to send Paul and the apostles to preach the gospel to the Corinthians. And in Paul's thinking, the fact that they have heard the gospel is an act of the grace of God in their lives. And so for people in the church in Corinth to continue to disbelieve what Paul has said and what Paul has taught, that is to take that grace of God in their life and take it in vain and reject it and ignore it. That is to take the grace of God in the preaching of the word and the hearing of the gospel and take it in vain. Now we see this happen day in and day out in our day-to-day lives. And we see it happen in the life of the church all the time. We have something called baby dedication here at Bay Life. It's kind of like the Baptist version of infant baptism, but it's not. It's not. Um, and so what, what baby dedication ultimately is, is it's parents saying, along with the church, that we have committed before God to train these kids in a way that is in accordance with the scriptures, to teach them the gospel, to raise them in the church, uh, to call them to know and love and believe in Jesus. It is a commitment on the part of the parents to train their children up in the knowledge of the Lord. But here's the tragedy about that, is parents could commit to that and they could be faithful to that commitment and there will still be kids who grow up and they never believe in Christ and they never accept the gospel and they walk away. But hey, if you're one of those kids who, whose parents preach the gospel to you, whose parents taught you the scriptures, whose parents told you about Jesus, just know that that is an act of grace in your life. So your parents may not be perfect, they may not be wonderful, they may not be great, but that is God's grace in your life that you grew up in a church and in a family where people taught you the gospel. And should you continue to walk in unrepentance and never submit to the lordship of Jesus, that would be taking the grace of God in vain and receiving it in vain. Kent Hughes, who's a pretty famous pastor, um, describes this, uh, this older saint, older pastor named Charles Simeon. If you're doing our life group study, Behold Your God, you've probably heard the name. I think it's been mentioned before. But Charles Simeon was a fellow in the King's College in Cambridge. Uh, and Charles Simeon preached in that city for 50 years. And when he died in 1836, 
the newspaper in that city ran his obituary, and in the obituary, they described this event that happened about 30 years into his ministry, where he was preaching from the pulpit of the church that he was a part of. He was pleading with people to love Christ, to cherish Christ, to submit to the gospel, and he got more and more and more serious, more grave, more quiet, more careful in the way that he phrased things. And then he said in the middle of his sermon, there are people in this room who I have preached to for 30 years and you still have not turned to Christ. And verbatim, the obituary says that as he said this, he grew quiet and silent and he sank down in the pulpit in a flood of tears because he realized that the fact that people grow up in churches where the gospel's preached and the, and the truth of Christ is proclaimed clearly, that's the grace of God. And to go 30 years and continue to reject it is to take that grace and receive it in vain. I'm not so naive as to think that there are not people like that in this room and certainly people like that in this church. And Paul recognizes that there are people like that in Corinth. And so he takes... Isaiah in verse two, he quotes Isaiah, in a favorable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And he takes what Isaiah says and he applies it to the Corinthians. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's as if to say, stop waiting. I've written you like five letters, two of which are in the New Testament. You've heard it over and over and over again. Stop waiting. Stop continuing to take this gift of God, this grace of God in vain. But what Paul realizes is that there are people in Corinth who will not accept the gospel because they don't like the messenger, which is Paul. And so he realizes that if people are going to hear what it is that he says, he has to address their concerns about him. And so we come to verse three. He says, we put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry but as servants we commend ourselves in every way. And he begins to list all sorts of negative things. Actually, one early church commentator called this the blizzard of troubles, which sounds super optimistic. It's great, we're just gonna skip through a blizzard of troubles this evening together. But I think Paul knows that answering the question is important. About five to seven years ago, I was playing in a band and we did our first like big I wouldn't even call it a tour. We played our first shows out of state. And that's a big deal if, if you just grew up playing in people's garages and in like church youth rooms. That's kind of a cool thing to say, hey, I played outside of the state that this band started in. And so we, in the most stupid of fashions, decided that the first show would be in Daytona Beach, the second show would be in Nashville, and then we would drive home. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. We didn't make any money we all went in the red. It was, a, it was a foolish idea. And the band that we were doing these two shows with said probably halfway through the planning process, hey, our van broke down. Can we ride with you guys? So our van was a 12-passenger van, and we put 18 people in it plus amps and guitars. So the engineers in this room are screaming inside because that is a dangerous thing to do. And we load up after our show in Daytona Beach, it's midnight, we have to be in Nashville by 12 the next morning, uh, and we launch north. I fall asleep somewhere in the middle of Georgia, and I wake up somewhere in the middle of Georgia to what sounds like a gunshot in my car. 
And I realize, after about two or three minutes of screaming, because I think I've been shot, that the back tire has blown out. And I realize, as the car starts spinning, that the guy driving doesn't know what to do when your tire blows out, which is pump the brakes. He just slams on them. So we start fishtailing. And everybody's awake at this point, in case you were wondering. Nobody slept through that. Everybody's awake. Everybody's terrified. And our van ends up this way on the road. So our lights are going on either direction uh, into the woods on either side of the interstate, which means that the semi-truck behind us can now no longer see our van. And two or three seconds after the van stops moving, somebody notices the semi-truck. And then everybody notices the semi-truck. And then everybody starts screaming and saying things like, Jesus, receive me into your kingdom, and crawling over each other. There's profanity, there's tears, there's crying for your mother. Like, there's, people are freaking out. It's like a sinking ship with rats just crawling over each other. Semi-truck swerves last minute. We're alive. We survive. I'm here. Everything's good. We limp the van off onto the side of the road. And I remember talking to one of the guys, because everybody in the van was uh, a believer. Both of the bands were Christian bands. And I remember him sort of sitting there on the side of the road with this glazed over look in his eyes that can only be produced by almost dying 30 seconds before. And him saying, you know, we do this as a ministry and I just don't understand why stuff like this happens if this is what God wants us to do. So this was 20-year-old Travis. And I didn't really have a response for him. I just said, yeah, that was pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I walked off to try and call AAA. But the question that my friend asked on the side of the interstate in Georgia, Paul's accuser at, accusers are asking in reverse. They're saying to Paul, you say that you encountered the risen Christ. You say that you were called to this. You say that this is what God desires for you to do. Man, if that's really what he wanted, why are things going so bad for you? And because they're going bad for you, you must not be doing what he wants you to, so I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. And Paul knows that this question needs to be answered. And ultimately, Paul says that we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. And then he just lists all the bad things that have happened to him that is on everybody's mind as they accuse him. Because the point that Paul is making here is that rather than undermining the validity of what I'm saying to you, the fact that I endure suffering faithfully is a testimony to the reality that the gospel that I'm preaching has the power to sustain people even through the darkest of nights. That's the point that Paul is making. I said this at the beginning of our series. I want to repeat it again because it bears repeating. Understand if you're a Christian in this room, that you are never under more scrutiny than when you walk through suffering. Because we are fond of saying as Christians that we have hope beyond this life and hope beyond our circumstances. The truth of that statement and the sincerity of your claim is tested when your circumstances go to crap. And this is the point that Paul is making, is far from disqualifying me, far from showing, showing the fact that God uh, has forsaken me, the fact that I have walked through these things and have endured and God has sustained me. It's a testimony to the fact that this gospel has power. And so he says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. 
But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. And then he lists the things that he's demonstrated endurance in, in afflictions, in hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. That is a blizzard of troubles indeed. That is a list of unfortunate things. But one commentator notes that each of these nine things sort of falls into a specific category of suffering. There's really three categories present in Paul's list, and it's broken up into threes. So the first three things that he lists that he has demonstrated endurance in are afflictions, hardships, and calamities. And uh, this commentator, he describes these as general troubles. These are the sort of things that come to every person, often as a surprise, sometimes as just an expected part of life. Afflictions and calamities and trials and hardships. So in Paul's day, things were a little bit different as far as what falls into this category. He's looking at things like drought and famine. He's looking at things like pestilence. Uh, he's looking at radical upheavals of power within the Roman Empire and rebellions and things like that. In our day, they don't look quite the same, at least not in the West. But nonetheless, the general troubles do come to each and every one of us, and they can be something as small as a flat tire, which happened to me last week on the way home from service, and they can go as large as things like a cancer diagnosis or the sudden death of a loved one. But these are the things that come to everyone in life. And what Paul says is in the way that he has interacted with these things, he has demonstrated endurance. And that endurance testifies to the fact that the gospel has power and that it sustains. Paul's general troubles may not look like ours, but I wonder if you would ask yourself the question as I've asked myself this question this week. When you face the general troubles of life, do you conduct yourself in such a way that to the unbelieving world they see that the gospel of Jesus Christ has power? Or do we conduct ourselves in a way that doesn't demonstrate that? Paul says in the general troubles he has endured in such a way that there could be no fault found in his ministry or in his message. There's a, a second category. After calamities, he describes beatings, imprisonments, and riots, and all of these things are the persecution that came from Paul preaching the gospel. And so these might be called the troubles that come from persecution. These are the things that come as a result of our commitment to the gospel of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Now, beatings, riots, imprisonment, Make no mistake, none of that is happening in the United States. None of us have experienced anything like that in this country. But do not be so naive as to think that these are not still realities to this day for brothers and sisters around the world. In 2007, there was an event that took place in Turkey that shocked the nation in many ways. Uh, there were three men who were involved in a Christian book company and I'm going to butcher their names, and so I'm, I'm sorry. Yuger, uh, uh, Neketi, or Neseti, and Tillman. And these three men lived in a predominantly Muslim country, and they were doing their best to do the work of evangelism among Muslim people. Uh, and they were sharing the gospel as best they could, and there came a point where they encountered some younger men who had expressed an interest in Christianity. 
And they said, well, if you're interested, man, we would, love, we would love for you to come back to the book company that they ran, and we'd love to just do a Bible study with you and walk you through the scriptures. And so they invited these men back, and one of the men looked down and read this passage of scripture, and he looked up, and the rest of them looked up to see if the men they had invited in had any questions or any, any points that they wanted to make based on the scripture that was read. And when they looked up, they saw that the men had brought a black bag with them, and in the bag, they had knives, they had rope, and they had towels. And the article I read said that uh, the young men tied up the three and then spent the next three hours torturing them. Tillman was stabbed 156 times. The second man was stabbed 99 times. The last man was stabbed so many times that they could not count the number. They were disemboweled, their, their intestines were sliced up in front of them, they were castrated and forced to watch as it happened to the rest of their men. Their fingers were chopped off, their noses and their mouths were sliced open, and then their throats were slit so deeply that they were nearly decapitated, all while it was filmed. Obviously, this happens in any country and it's a, a concerning thing. But in this country, there was a huge debate. There were people who did not like Christian influence, and so that was something that was a source of celebration, maybe. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but there were others who were outraged, and it became such a big deal that the local paper interviewed the widow of Tillman and asked if she had any words for the man and the men who killed her husband, and her response was, oh God, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the newspaper who reported her words said this, and I'm quoting, she did in one sentence what 1,000 missionaries in 1,000 years could never do. Because in the midst of the persecution that came for the sake of the gospel, she showed that Christ was sufficient and that the gospel had power to carry her and sustain her and give her endurance even in the greatest of heartbreaks and agony. Make no mistake, we don't deal with that in the United States. We deal with much smaller things. Culture's position has shifted on the orthodox Christian opinion of what marriage is. Christianity is seen not so much as irrelevant as possibly even dangerous. We face the possibility of being marginalized from the cultural conversation. These are small things compared to what our brothers and sisters deal with, but I'm telling you that the way that you and I react to persecution and the way in which we endure such things is the best testament to the power of the gospel to sustain the people of God. Paul endures beatings, imprisonments and riots and he endures them in such a way that he says Jesus is enough even when you take everything from me. The last category of troubles. He describes labors, sleepless nights and hunger. And this category is really self-inflicted in some ways. Uh, this is also the category that I feel and relate to the most. Because what Paul describes here are the things that we might subject ourselves to in the service of the gospel. I read Paul talking about enduring sleepless nights and that hits home for me. Can I just tell you how many nights I have spent pacing my apartment in anxiety and concern for the people of this ministry? That you would love Jesus 
that you would submit to the gospel, that you would embrace sound doctrine, that you would continue in the power of faith to the end. I get Paul when he talks about sleepless nights and anxieties, and I'm sure that many of you have experienced that as well. For friends who've walked away from the faith, for siblings who walk away from the Lord or walk in sin, as you've made sacrifices to serve in the life of this church, these things that come that we often choose in our service of the gospel, the way that we walk through them is just as significant as the fact that we do walk through them. Because I can tell you that there have been times where I've endured sleepless nights and that early morning comes and I'm complaining about it. If so-and-so weren't such an idiot, I could have slept last night. And very often, when we serve and we sacrifice in that way, we complain about it. But Paul says the way that he has endured these things gives credibility to the gospel he preaches. And I pray that as you endure those things, you would do so in such a way that it testifies to the truth of the gospel. But then Paul shifts. And you'll notice the shift. Because now he's not talking about sad, depressing things anymore. Verse six, he says, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And I think the shift that takes place here for Paul is that he has shifted from the things he has endured to what has enabled him to endure these things. Because now he's not talking about external things happening to him. He's talking about the condition of his own soul. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, love, truthful speech, the power of God. These are the things in Paul's life that have enabled him to endure all of the troubles that he's experienced. Because I think Paul recognizes something that is profoundly true. What it is that sustains you in the middle of difficulty is just as important as the fact that you are sustained. So, point in case. A couple years ago, uh, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and he was chain smoker McGee. And I would always give him a hard time about it, and it was just kind of me being a jerk, I guess. And he said, well, I mean, you're addicted to caffeine, so what are you gonna do about it? And I got so mad in that moment, which is probably just my pride being wounded. I was like, yeah, screw you, man. And I went cold turkey from that day on. And I, I mean, I was drinking like a liter of Coke a day, and five cups of coffee a day. Like, I was cripplingly addicted to caffeine. And so that one thing that sort of wounded my pride, I just said, that's fine. I won't be addicted anymore. And then you've got nothing to say to me. And I spent about two years with no caffeine at all whatsoever. And anytime I was tempted, I just thought about how much I hated what he said. And that hate just fueled me. And it's so petty and it's so stupid and it's just sort of a microcosm of how I make big deals out of things that aren't big deals, I guess. But for two years, that hate was enough. It's like, I hate the fact that you said this and the next time you say it to me, I'm gonna have ammunition. But literature's full of people who are sustained through things just out of vengeance. Count of Monte Cristo what sustains the main character through his years of imprisonment? It is the thirst for vengeance. What sustained me during caffeine withdrawals, which by the way are a nightmare and absolutely horrible, it was the fact that I wanted to prove somebody wrong. But I'll tell you what, I've already had four cups of that coffee back there and it's not caffeine free because the hate wasn't enough to carry me all the way through. And it wasn't enough 
And it isn't enough to sustain you through the trials that life will throw your way. The desire to just prove somebody wrong, the desire for vengeance, these are not the sort of things that sustain a Christian through suffering and difficulty. The sort of things that sustain a Christian through persecution and sleepless nights and hunger and hardship and imprisonment and beatings and riots, the things that carry us through that is purity, holiness, it's knowledge and understanding of Christ and his decrees. It's patience, it's kindness, it's genuine love, it's truthful speech, it's ultimately the power of God. That is what carries us through these things. Paul is not carried through any of this because he white-knuckled his way through his time in prison. There's a foundation of righteousness in his life that he is able to stand on when the storms come his way. And right in the middle of this list of attributes and things, something astounding happens. He says purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit. It just sort of comes out of nowhere because he's been listing things and all of a sudden he lists a person right in the middle of the text. And I think the reason that he does that is because he wants you and I and the Corinthians to realize that all of these things that describe a righteous person, purity, Knowledge, patience, kindness, love, all of these things flow out of the work of the Spirit in the life of a Christian. Now I realize we're not necessarily a charismatic church, and so you hear Holy Spirit and you get a little antsy because you're like, oh no, are they gonna start speaking in tongues? What's gonna happen? But, but just know that, that the work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian is to convict and conform them to the image of Christ. And there are certainly other things that the Spirit does but at the very base level, it is to convict and to conform and to encourage the Christian so that they might be more like Christ. And in being like Christ, they might endure suffering as he did and persevere through it. And in persevering, the Spirit's role to bring glory to Christ is accomplished because when the people of God suffer faithfully, Christ is glorified because it demonstrates that his gospel is enough. And that is what carries Paul. It is the righteousness that is produced by the work of the Spirit and his life that carries him through all these things and points to the fact that the gospel he preaches is true. Man, it's my prayer that we in this ministry are a people who the Holy Spirit continues to sanctify, to make holy, to make righteous, so that we always endure these things in a way that honors Jesus. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna continue to sing together this evening, so would you bow your heads with me? Father, uh, we come before you knowing uh, that we do not have strength in our own to endure the trials that come our way, but endure them we must. And I'm thankful that we don't have to endure them on our own strength but that you have given us the Holy Spirit to make us pure and righteous and loving and patient and kind and to make us like Christ so that we might suffer and endure in a way that honors Christ who for our sake suffered and endured unto the end. Lord, as we continue to sing, I ask the Holy Spirit who is convicting us would stir our hearts to give thanks for all that you've done and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can stand. We'll continue.